Welcome to episode 36 of the Accessibility Craft Podcast, where we explore the art of creating accessible websites while trying out interesting craft beverages. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Equalize Digital, a WordPress accessibility company, and the proud creators of the Accessibility Checker plugin. In this episode, we discuss different types of accessibility documentation that websites and applications might use, from general accessibility statements to VPATs. For show notes and a full transcript, go to accessibilitycraft.com slash 036. And now, on to the show. Hey everybody, it's Amber. <laughs> Alright, no, we're going to keep that in. Alright, it's Amber, and I'm here today with Chris. Hey. And Steve. Hello, everyone. And we are on take three of the start of this podcast, but you know, <laughs> we're just rolling with it. Uh, I think we're all recording now, so that's great. And we're yep. going to... We're going to be talking about accessibility <laughs> statements and VPATs and how you document the accessibility of your website or your software. But first, we're going to have a beverage. Absolutely. And I'm particularly excited about this one. Um, it's a stout beer, which checks a box for amber. It's uh, got peanut butter as one of the ingredients, and I love peanut butter. Um, and it's... Uh, not Diet Coke, so Steve will have an interesting reaction. Um, so I'm excited about all those things. But without further ado, we're trying Belching Beaver's peanut butter flavored milk stout beer today. Um, so this promises to be a a stout that has hints of peanut butter, nice dark color, flavors of roasted peanuts, chocolate, and coffee. Um, yeah, I'm and excited. Yeah, it, it seems really good. Also, I'm excited, and it may end up in the background noise despite my best efforts to edit it, but it is thunderstorming in Texas right now, so it is the perfect time to have a stout beer. We've got rain outside for the first time in like two months. Um, so shall All we right. So this crack is not this a open? twist off, right? No, no. I've right. got... I've got my WordPress oh, uh, bottle too. opener here. <laughs> so I'm ready I'm, to... I'm, I'm such a uh, a non-drinker that I had to use the can open the bottle opener on the can opener. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> That's funny. These wrong so with that. so these WordPress um, bottle openers were an organizer gift from WordCamp Denver 2016. Chris, oh. yeah, that sounds right. Drew Janes was our lead organizer. I will give him a shout out because he is fabulous. And I hadn't seen him for a really long time until WordCamp US. But he, he gave these to everyone. And they have the bottle opener. But on the reverse side, there is a piece of rubber. And you can actually, after your bottle is open, you can slide this thing on top of your bottle. And it will seal it and keep the carbonation in. And it worked so well. That And he was describing it to us, and we were all like, what? No, we don't believe you. And so he, like, slides it on top of an open bottle of beer in one of our organizer meetings on Zoom. And he holds the bottle upside down over his brand-new MacBook to prove to us that it really works. And we were like... That's brave. It really works. <laughs> I'm guessing he <laughs> tested it over a sink first. <laughs> but anyway, I will open my beer now. Right. But that's the story behind yeah. the WordPress bottle openers. Yeah. All right. Right. Oh man, that that smells like peanut butter. 
I just drank it. I didn't even smell it. You did? Yeah. Amber was ready. But, Amber was raring to have a sip of this. Yeah. It smells so like a peanut butter cookie to me. Right. That is literally mm-hmm. what it smells like to me. That somebody spilled beer on. <laughs> I mean, that might not be so bad. A beer soaked right? peanut butter cookie. Yeah. We're going to have a belching contest after this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, they have a fun logo. I, I yep. like when they have fun logos and they have a kind of angry looking beaver <laughs> with his mouth very wide open and he's got his arms spread out and he's holding a peanut in one hand and a bottle or no, a glass of beer with foam on the top of it and the other one. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go. Yeah. I like this. Um it's it's way more peanutty to me at least on the nose than it is when I drink it. Um, yeah, totally. It's also it's also not super bitter, um, unlike that IPA we had last week or the week before. I, yeah. I don't want to institute a no IPA rule on this podcast. <laughs> Can I, we? I, I, I second that motion. Yeah, that'll be the that that's yet another T-shirt idea for when we have the accessibility craft T-shirt store. As friends don't let friends drink IPAs. <laughs> that's a good yes. idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, it's not it's not too bitter. Um, the it's definitely very full bodied. I kind of get the the lacto fermentation thing going on with the milk stout. Like it's got it's got kind of the, a buttery flavor to it Mm. i'm getting that on the aftertaste it's it's creamy like it's a Mm -hmm. little creamy and it leaves a like a feeling in your mouth but it's good it's not it's not oily like it's it's it like goes it like goes in creamy and then the end of it gets a little bitter right yeah like yeah the finish yeah yeah Yeah, it has a little bit of a better finish i think it's sweet like for a Mm -hmm. beer this is a sweet beer yeah to me yeah it does, what it do does you think, have a Steve? little bit of, of sweetness to it. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I it, Steve it, doesn't, it doesn't taste as peanut buttery as it smells. Um, but it's not bad. I mean, it's not, it's not bad. It's not nasty like the other one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, uh, it is, uh, it does contain lactose. So uh, if you're lactose intolerant, uh, belching might not be the only thing you're doing after drinking this. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't actually understand. And I love stouts, but I've never actually spent time like researching it. Do you know, Chris, like what's explain the, the milk stout? So my my understanding and hopefully I don't embarrass myself because, I mean, we obviously know with the with the thousands of people that listen to this podcast, probably at least a few of them are are beer professionals and professional brewers because they really care about our opinions. No, I'll stop being sarcastic. Um, so no, my, my, my understanding is when it's, when it's something that's lacto fermented, like it's, it's a particular type of bacteria that, um, firm ferments in like milk or yogurt or things like that. Like, so they're, they're using those type of bacteria versus a different type like traditional brewer's yeast. Or it could even be a blend. I'm not sure. But it produces kind of a different flavor. It definitely leaves you with a lot to experience. Like, you know, not, like some of the others, you know, like the IPA was just straight up bitter, right? Like mm-hmm. this definitely leaves you with 
you know, an aftertaste that there's a lot to experience, right? Going yeah. in and then after a few seconds and the finish, it's, and then even if you wait, if you know, like a few minutes, it's like, there's still, you're still like tasting stuff. There's mm-hmm. a lot, there's a lot yeah. in there. Yeah. It's, it's like not a, beer. it's not like a, a one note beer, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. So, um, you you know, the thing yeah. I know about like milk sto- stouts is that they say that if you're a nursing mom, that this helps with milk production. Hmm. <laughs> like the lactose or something in it. I don't know. That's in the a, thing I remember from stout? my past days <laughs> outside of web when I was a lactation consultant. We would be like, <laughs> go drink a beer. But it's also weird because sometimes it's also like it just yeah. relaxes you. And so then maybe you don't stress out about it so much. <laughs> but but it like... It's not good to like drink alcohol and then nurse your baby, right? <laughs> Put, well, you got pump mean, and dump. It depends on how much you drink. <laughs> a little oh. bit of beer is not gonna. I mean, you don't want to get wasted. <laughs> 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 but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Weird facts. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so. So I'm curious so, to know, as you all taste this, I mean, they're saying we should be tasting like roasted peanuts, dark chocolate, and coffee. I kind of get the roasted peanut on the finish. I don't feel like I'm really getting coffee or chocolate, um, or I'm not able to pick them out. How do y'all feel? Yeah, on okay. the finish, there's a little bit of, some. there's something on the finish that's like creamy. I don't know if that's chocolate or if that's the milk, like... The finish for me is like, you know, like the red skin that's on the outside of a freshly peeled peanut, like that kind of like, that's what I feel like I taste is like that slightly astringent, like peanut skin, like the outer layer, Um, which is a little weird to say, I know, but that's like kind of what I'm, what I'm getting. I get the chocolate. I get, I don't get coffee at all. I don't think I would call this like a cop. Like there are other stouts. I think we've even had one. They had a very strong, like, more bitter or acidic kind of coffee flavor. I don't get that. But I get the chocolate with the peanut yeah. butter both on the nose. Like, I get it on the nose, too, and okay. in the flavor. And, like, to me, honestly, like, I'm, like, it's like a, a tasty grown-up version of a peanut butter cup. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, it, like, kind of smells to me. And, I like the and way I, you describe that. And I get that. the chocolate a little bit. A taste a grown-up peanut butter cup that's that's fun um i mean i yeah i what i will say too is i feel like this is different than many other stouts i've tried like a lot of times when i'm smelling or tasting a stout like it's really heavy on like molasses vanilla like those types of flavors like the coffee's really heavy uh this one i'm getting less of that and i'm getting some different stuff like it's a little sweet i'm getting a little bit of the peanut butter and maybe maybe what i'm tasting is sweet is what you're perceiving as chocolate amber um and we're just perceiving it differently right um that's the fun thing about tasting these things it's always completely subjective um but no i would i would get this again yeah yeah me this too. is good this has this has a seal of approval from me and i'm i am not normally one to like stouts um, so that's, that's pretty unique for me to find a stout I actually kind of enjoy. Awesome. Well, shall we dive into some accessibility stuff? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So 
I wanted to talk a little bit today. We're going to be maybe less technical, which is good because I know not everyone who listens to this podcast is a developer. Um, let's talk about how we can document accessibility. Uh, and I think there's a couple of different ways that we can do this. We've mentioned you know, previously before, but we haven't really talked about in greater details. And the two big ones are accessibility statements on websites and uh, a voluntary product accessibility template, AKA a VPAT, um, which is a more technical thing. Whereas the accessibility statement is a statement. It's not even like a legal document. Um, and so I thought it would be interesting to talk about this because we get questions from people. I mean, do you hear this, Chris, in your sales conversations about do I need an accessibility statement? Typically, I am the one bringing up accessibility statements to basically give give people or make people aware of some tools that they have to introduce public controls around accessibility and better communication around accessibility with their audience um, and how that can sometimes help them uh, direct complaints in a more productive manner to the right people who can help solve the person's problem, right? Versus someone just immediately contacting their attorney or feeling pushed off, like having a statement, having a policy that's public and that I mean, most importantly, that your team is aware and behind executing is is critically important. Um, and I think they they can um, just help organizations be more proactive about how they respond to and address accessibility complaints. And that's prime the primary lens through which it comes up in my conversations. But of course, I know that there's there's more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I actually wrote my post, a recent post on the admin bar for the accessibility weekly series that I do about this and, and even going back to, which I think we've had this episode on the podcast, Lainey Feingold's talk was a podcast episode, right? So we'll have yes. to find what episode number that was. Maybe you can dig that up to tell people, but um, she came and spoke at WordPress accessibility meetup about laws in the United States. And that was a question that people asked her. And of course, she's an attorney. And um, and I went to go find that clip. And then I looked at her blog. She has a really great article or page on her website that talks all about accessibility statements. And what she says on there, and she said the same thing at Meetup, was that she does think that having an accessibility page linked in your footer helps organizations avoid legal actions. So it can be protective of a lawsuit. Uh, but she says on her on her page on her website, as long as there's an active phone number and email address and site visitors get prompt and positive responses to feedback. So you can't just put one and not do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but but p consumers are looking for that and they like transparency. And they're looking for a way to get help. And if that page shows them how to get help, then they are, are more likely to reach out, you know, and, and try and get help proactively rather than, you know, if they can't get help, that's when I think sometimes those lawsuits happen because they're frustrated. Mm -hmm. 
So, so oh, go on ahead. the on that front, I know that like we spent a lot of time when we were creating Equalize Digital many many years ago thinking about what we wanted our own accessibility statement to look like and how we wanted it to read. Um, maybe it would be beneficial just to quickly take people through like what what the major components of a good accessibility statement are. We've already kind of covered have a clear path to reach out to someone if you need help. So that's that's one of the first things. I would also say it's kind of like the reverse side of that. And and I, I don't want to call anybody out, but I have seen accessibility statements where they're they're more about like just trying to shield the company from legal liability and um, and less about being helpful. And that's what you want to stay away from too is just have your having your accessibility statement read like it's a you know a, a terms of service or a a privacy policy right you want it to be like an actual helpful actionable document but amber what are amber or steve like what are some of the other sections that you've seen or that you think are important besides having someone to contact this episode of accessibility craft is sponsored by Equalize Digital Accessibility Checker, the WordPress plugin that helps you find accessibility problems before you hit publish. A WordPress native tool, Accessibility Checker provides reports directly on the post-edit screen. Reports are comprehensive enough for an accessibility professional or developer, but easy enough for a content creator to understand. Accessibility Checker is an ideal tool to audit existing WordPress websites, find accessibility problems during new builds, or monitor accessibility and remind content creators of accessibility best practices on an ongoing basis. Scans run on your server, so there are no per-page fees or external API connections. GDPR and privacy compliant, real-time accessibility scanning. Scan unlimited posts and pages with Accessibility Checker free. Upgrade to a paid version of Accessibility Checker to scan custom post types and password-protected sites. View site-wide open issue reports and more. Download Accessibility Checker free today at equalizedigital.com forward slash accessibility dash checker. Use coupon code accessibilitycraft to save 10% on any paid plan. Sure. I mean, I think some of the the basics are like, you know, features that you're, that accessibility features that you have on your website, right? You want to list those out. You want to, you want to list out uh, like areas of improvement. Is that, you know, like a, um, this was a big thing that came up with one of the community colleges that we're doing remediation for, and they're using a third-party platform for their course registration for, like, adult classes, not, like, the credit, but, like, the lifelong learning classes. And the Office of Civil Rights told them, because they reached out to that third-party platform, and the third-party platform is like, yeah, we can't fix this stuff. And they're like, okay, but we don't have time to change, like we can't write instantly change this. And the Office of Civil Rights was like, well, what you what is helpful is don't waste people's time. Mm. So put a very big statement above the link to go register that says, no, you know, our registration platform is not accessible. We're in the process of changing it. 
in the meantime, if, you, if you're if you a person with a screen reader and you don't want to use it, here's how you can register, like an alternate method, but putting it really clear. And I think that's the same thing, like what you're saying, Steve, of like listing out these are areas we know, because yeah. if you if you tell people ahead of time, all of our PDFs created before 2017 are not accessible, then they aren't going to waste their time trying to download those PDFs. Right. I think I think that goes to what Chris was saying. You know, it's like don't find, don't just go find an accessibility statement on the internet and copy and paste it onto your website and you know wipe your hands and think you're think you're good, right? Like it needs to be, it needs to be uh, catered to your specific website, right? Like it needs to, it needs to list out features that accessible features you actually have implemented and ones that are you actively are working on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's actually sort of a good point. And now that we've done this, like I opened our accessibility statement and I hadn't been on there for, for quite a while, right? But like talking about like accessibility statements probably should be living documents. And mm-hmm. I noticed on here that we still say in ours, because we have a whole section on ours that talks about, well, so I think it's important to always include what sort of standard you're trying to meet or if you have a promise or a commitment of some sort, like say that so people know. And then we, so we have that and we say that we're um, continually testing for WCAG 2.1 level AA compliance and where possible we strive to meet AAA compliance. And then we follow up by saying how we're testing. And I noticed that it still says we use Monsito, which we don't because we use our own plugin now. <laughs> and we were all like, we don't need to pay for Monsito. Sorry, Monsito. Yeah, so, yeah. so thinking about this, I'm like, oh, man, living document. I'm going to go edit this page like right now and remove that. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of accessibility checker, you know, not to toot our own horns, but I mean, we our plugin does include an accessibility statement. Uh, mm-hmm. when when you install the plugin it'll 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 automatically uh, set up a draft page with a template accessibility statement with some of these areas that you know we've we've been talking about and placeholders for you to put in your own information your own contact information yeah it's much like the way wordpress core spins up a draft privacy policy statement ours does the same thing so it's not published but it's a draft that gives you some copy and then you can go in and edit it to make it accurate for your organization and then publish and link it in the footer if you want. Yeah, so. in the in the accessibility checker settings, there's a there's a little uh checkbox to display to display a link to your yeah, yeah, it's called a add footer accessibility statement. So you just check a box and and it'll show that accessibility statement page in your footer. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's see. We talked about your accessibility statement. It should have contact information. Oh, so I mentioned this. Lainey said phone number and email address. I think this is one thing that we've had to talk clients out of because I know a lot of us, we don't like putting an email address because you get a lot of spam. And Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll totally say the email address that's on our page, it is only for that one page. It gets a lot of spam. It used to just go to my personal inbox and I was getting so, and I mean like total, just like, you know, someone crawled the email address, harvest it. Now it goes, it forwards to our Zendesk support system because Zendesk <laughs> has much better filters than Gmail does for 
getting yeah. spam and, and not sending them in. Um, but but why? Should we talk a little bit about why you should have an email address and not a contact form on your accessibility statement? It's probably for accessibility, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're <laughs> if you're using a form solution or you've built a custom web form that isn't itself accessible, then your audience that requires accessibility features will not be able to ask you for help. Yeah. Assume yeah, if it's not accessible. So, you could have a form, but you really need to know and and it's a little bit dicey with WordPress plugins because we've talked about this before, they might release an update and even if you're using a really trusted form plugin you never know so to me it's just safer to give them an email address yeah, or yeah. a phone number if someone prefers to call mm -hmm. yeah i like i like on ours too how uh you have the last updated on there is that is that part of the is that part of the statement or is that part of the website last it says last updated. uh that's manual on the page Oh, so it's on the page. I think we have those on our statement and we also put them on our like our terms of service and our privacy policy and stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah. um yeah, so I'll I'll be able to go change that date <laughs> and say I I mean that's a good question. Like yeah. like so R says last updated April eighteenth, twenty twenty. So uh how often should we be updating these statements? I would say in an ideal world, annually at a minimum, which obviously we have not done. We just found a mistake in ours, um, listing a tool we don't use anymore. Well, hold um, on. Should you be updating it annually or just reviewing it annually? Well, I guess that's what I mean by by that. I don't mean changing it just for the sake of change. Yeah. Um, so you need to review it at least annually to make sure it's still accurate? Mm-hmm. So, but, so re does... but reviewing the accessibility statement itself, just the language is not enough, right? It also means reviewing your website and having some sort of check in place to make sure that you're checking at least annually that you're, that the features you claim to have on your mm -hmm. website are still indeed there and still usable. So mm -hmm. would, a, would a review constitute up bumping that last updated date? If, if you've reviewed it for 2020 four which is coming up unbelievably um <laughs> like would 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 you update that date if you've reviewed it no i think no? i think generally you only change the date if you've changed the content right right so mm -hmm. if you like if you review it and it's all still accurate and act and still reflects like your policy and your practices as an organization then you probably don't need to change the date so cool yeah um so so accessibility statements <clears throat> we'll put some links in the show notes over to um laney has a great article and then um there's we'll put a link over to my post on the admin bar because that has a great sort of explanation about how to write one if you want to start um i think there's also the UK.gov has a sample accessibility statement and the W3 has an accessibility statement generator. So there, there are a lot of different ones, but I would say you definitely need to, you know, read them and, and make sure that they accurately reflect what's going on in your organization. And potentially, even though they're not, a, like, it's not a legal document in the same way that, like, terms of service or a privacy policy is. 
it still might behoove you if you're a very large organization to just run it by an attorney, I would think. Mm -hmm. Would you do that for for anybody or only buddy or only any like country or, or you know anybody that's under a requirement by their government? Yeah, well, so so that's a good point, which is that people sometimes ask, "Are these required by law?" Um, and in the United States, you're not required to have an accessibility statement, with the exception of when websites have gotten sued, then they are frequently required to add one as part of the settlement. And then they're required to because that was part of their yeah. settlement agreement. Um, but outside of the United States, uh, the European Union and laws in the UK require public sector government websites to have them. Mm. So I don't know, like circling back to your question, like what would I say? I mean, I would say generally if you're under a certain jurisdiction that does require it, then then I would definitely check with an attorney to make sure. If you're not, it's kind of you decide. But I mean, that's the way it works with privacy policies too, right? Some businesses yeah. just like write their own and they're like, okay, whatever, I'm good. And other businesses are like, nah, I'm going to have an attorney write this for me. And some use the generators in between, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I mean, you know, like I think with a lot of the accessibility stuff, you know, we talk about the legal, um, you know, and, and but I, you know, we always kind of take the next step to the ethical, right? Mm -hmm. like, yes. We, you know, we probably should all have an ethical responsibility to, you know, think about accessibility going, always trying to be a, a step above what, what is required by law. Because, I mean, in the future, it's like, it's likely, it's likely, it's highly likely that these things are going to be required by law sooner or later. So it's, it's good to get ahead of the game and be familiar you know, with these things and to be working towards those. So when it does become a law, you're not scrambling, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And as I think uh, putting my, my big business hat on for a second, because I've done large corporate jobs in the past. Like I, when I was still in contract dining, I, um, I worked for a very large multinational corporation and they had a whole risk management and compliance department that was checking in with all the units for all sorts of things related to complying with laws from HR to food, food handling related regulations to USDA related regulations and HACCP plans, so like all this stuff. And so I think if you're, if you, if you're a very large company and you're doing a lot digitally, right? So those were examples of like real world or physical world type risk management and compliance. If you're a digital company, hopefully your risk management or your compliance officer, like some some companies have like a CCO, like a chief compliance officer that is responsible for these things. Hopefully they're thinking about accessibility and are um, leveraging, leveraging tools, hiring in-house experts or working with other companies to have all of this buttoned up and, and handled appropriately. Yeah. You know what I think? And I mean, we could maybe go on a slight tangent here because we've had some of these conversations, not necessarily about accessibility, but I feel like this is probably one of the hardest thing about being a business owner is figuring out where is that line between I'm just a tiny micro business that nobody pays any attention to. And now I'm big enough that I need to start 
worrying about sales tax in Saskatchewan, Canada, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like, or whatever that might be. And, and I think that's probably challenging and, and, and on, you know, on the accessibility front, like there are a lot of laws that are changing and, um, and it can, you know, sort of be hard. I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but we have a client that used to sell to the LA County School District have we talked about that on the podcast? And how I think we maybe like nah. just slightly referred to that person kind of getting blindsided um, with now accessibility is so a requirement. Said. Now accessibility is mm. a requirement with your platform, and we like L- the LA schools will no longer allow that person to be a vendor because their platform isn't accessible and their content isn't accessible, and um, they claimed that they didn't know, right? Um, and the extent of our engagement with this customer, by the way, I think it's good to point out was limited to website maintenance. So it yeah, wasn't, we didn't build their website. We didn't build their website. We, we weren't advising them on accessibility at all. Um, but, uh, it kind of came out of the blue and now we are. Yeah. Cause now it, we, yeah. yeah, now we are. Cause you don't want to lose LA public schools as a client. Everyone yeah. who listens to this can probably imagine the size of that customer, um, in terms of like how big their organization is but But that's i mean that's the thing with the laws though right because the the law that ended up impacting that customer is that um state or federally funded entities can't purchase inaccessible technology and so there isn't necessarily so it wasn't that the the ada right was it became a problem. Now, of course, under the ADA and under the Unruh Civil Rights Act in California, where this person is located, like they needed to be accessible, and we had told them that. Right. Um, but, but what ended up impacting them was a law on the government entities that then stopped the government entities from spending their money with this organization. Um, so and, it is hard. There's a lot of laws was, that you might not know about. There was li- there was like little to no like advance, right? Like oh, there was zero warning. It came up in yeah. the renewal application uh, oh. that that went out, you know, sixty days before the whole contract was up. So like no time, no notice was given. Um, I mean, I don't know though. I have a hard time because I'm also like, we told her when we first they came to us for a maintenance. We were like, your website's not accessible. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it's a nonprofit, so, you know, they don't have a lot of budget, right? But But at the same time, highlights responsibility is it to watch all those laws? I don't know. Well, that's the thing that's hard. As a business owner, I think you got to be mindful of, of, you know, who your customer is or who your potential customer could be, right? Like, obviously, if you're in the education space, you're creating an educational platform at you're going to be tied to you know either higher ed or you know like some kind of K-12. government mm-hmm. yeah so, some government entity and that those requirements are going to are come down the path and of course you know it comes from california because california has the that they're they're like leading the charge in like legal requirements for accessibility in the united states right so a lot of things privacy policies too yeah 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 exactly so like their privacy policies are are probably like in line with some of the stuff that you know that's happening in europe right like Mm -hmm. so 
you got to kind of know your audience. You got to you got to be a little bit aware. Uh, you got to listen to the accessibility crap podcast so you know these things. Yeah. <laughs> Send your clients this episode, everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I I just want to say too, and like I can I can I really can like empathize with people who get blindsided by this, right? Especially if they don't, you know, if they haven't. It, you don't know what you don't know, and if you're distanced from web or your website or legal proceedings happening in the DOJ here in the U.S. or in your home state, like it's entirely possible you're completely oblivious to this stuff happening, and then one day it just slaps you in the face, right? And I think that's there. That is one shortcoming of our overall, you know, legal system and the way that we enforce laws is that a lot gets put on business owners and citizens, and they're just expected to understand thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of regulations. And there's no no sympathy, no quarter given for, I didn't know that this applied to me, right? It's It doesn't matter, it's the law, tough cookies. And like, that's, that's one reason, like, and this is becoming a tangent, but whatever, because this is like, I'm COO, so this is stuff I think about a lot, but you know, that, that's one reason why we have a external HR partner who, handles all of our reporting, all of our payroll tax, all of our processing, all of our compliance, because it's just too much with multiple people in multiple states to keep track yeah. of all of it. Um, same probably goes for some organizations as they get larger and have more product sales like big SASs, they're, they're probably working with external entities who handle all their sales tax. But even those entities don't apparently do a very good job. Um, Amber, you brought up sales tax earlier. So like there's yeah. there's just there's so much to track of. And so I do empathize. But at the same time, like, yes, it, we we should all be striving towards accessibility. And that's why we're doing the advocacy and the awareness. Um, we're well, trying to I build think, awareness for it. You know, so like you're saying, like bringing on partners. Right. So. So first of all, I think the biggest thing is that web developers, whether they're a freelancer or an agency, we have an ethical obligation to our clients or a fiduciary obligation to our clients to educate them. Even if we say to them, like we say to them all the time, we're not attorneys, but you need a privacy policy. I can't tell you what needs to be in it, but I know you need one. Yeah. You know, uh, or if you're a web developer that doesn't super get accessibility, yay for listening to our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that probably means you're learning. But but if you're but if you're not, like you you don't have to pretend to be an expert. But you should that does not mean that you should not tell your clients about it. So what you say is is that you may like, hey, you are a nonprofit selling to K-12 schools. Your your stuff is going to need to be accessible. I am not an accessibility specialist. I'm a really awesome developer. But here's a partner that I can bring in on this project to be the accessibility consultant on the team. Or here are some blind people that I'm going to pay to test your stuff or some some deaf people who are going to watch your videos and make sure that you're captioning them appropriately. And and then we're going to come up with a game plan. 
So I think like like that's what's really important because yeah, can can business owners stay on top of every law all the time? No. But but that's where like the when they come to us as the expert and build them a website. I mean, some some of these business owners don't even understand anything about the web, right? Like they ask the most basic questions and we all like to laugh at them in the Facebook groups for the agency owners or whatever, but like they're trusting us. Yes, and so yeah, you yeah. have to like you have to educate them that accessibility is important. Yeah. And why it's not an option. I mean, I think specifically for like the developers out there or like the, you know, the little solo agencies and stuff too, like I mean, this could be a whole episode in and of itself. You know, uh, if if you're you're including accessibility in your process, like it, it, and at least at the basic level of you're you're acknowledging it, you're explaining it to them, you're giving them options, right? That that could help mitigate risk uh, on you, because there there could be cases where like like if you create a platform for somebody, like an educational tool as a developer and then that company you know gets sued or something there may be standing to to go after that developer as well in certain jurisdictions so yeah so there's a bill i'll put a link in the show notes in california it didn't get out of committee this session so it's being held which means it won't be until the next session which will be two years from now um but in california um it's AB 1757, and it would adopt Web Content Accessibility Guidelines 2.1 AA as the de facto standards for websites and mobile apps, and it would impose liability for statutory damages on business establishments and website developers. So this, this proposed law is not just for businesses getting damages from the the states or in lawsuits also the developer who built the website so if this passes like this this will be a big thing to follow yeah, or you're just yeah. going to stop working with clients in california i don't know <laughs> yeah, the thing yeah, that's I'm... weird about that is the business doesn't have to be based there because websites serve everyone and yeah. if they're shipping you know if it's e-commerce business that ships stuff to california then they need to follow this law whether or not they happen to be located in california so. Yeah, I you know where my head immediately went with this as you know we're we're still building highly custom websites for people and delivering those to them, and then they have control over those websites and can add any plugins they want. They can add any content that they want. They can rearrange elements on the page. Where does the liability ultimately sit, and how do you prove that it's the developer versus the client when someone gets pulled into a lawsuit for this. I just see it being incredibly messy. Not that there aren't developers that build horribly inaccessible things because there are unfortunately still, but like for the people who are doing it right, I could even see this as being a significant potential liability unless they're yeah. literally not allowing their customers to touch the website at all. Yeah. I mean, this may be like this, you might, you might be asking yourself an operations question, Chris, like, yeah. like I, I mean, like it may be something in the process that gets implemented, right? Where there's, and you'd have to probably consult some lawyers to figure this out where there's some kind of trade, there's some kind of handoff, right? Like, and there's documents that signed by all parties involved that, you know, that, that shifts 
from from you like you we've acknowledged that it, it meets the certain accessibility requirements at this point in time we are this is now your baby to take home <laughs> and raise right like, yeah. yeah well our our thing already has a version of what you describe right and i think we've talked yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit before on previous episodes about some of the stuff that are in our terms around what we guarantee is accessible and what we don't and pretty much what we don't guarantee is anything that's third party or something that the customer does because yeah they're not a subject matter expert. They could do things that are inaccessible. Um, oh, I'm, I'm pretty uh, sure that our actual contract, the language in our contract goes a step further. And it says that we guarantee accessibility at the time of handoff. And that I, I'm pretty sure it specifically says something to the effect that if plugins are updated, we cannot guarantee. So it's like they would, it would need to be a static website <laughs> to stay, right? Like, they yeah, but do, do that. But, yeah, third-party plugins. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The question would be: Is is there a snapshot in time? Right, like, like, do are we? You know, we do like, um, you know, we do functionality proofs on our websites and and our and stuff, right? Like, we take screenshots to prove that things are functioning. It's almost like, do you need to store a snapshot in time? Like these, you know, I don't. I'm a developer, so like, you go into WPCLI, right, and you output all the plugins. And you save the right. You save what version every right. It's like, and just Can tuck you, that away in a file. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a lot of storage that you might end up with, especially if you're an agency that builds a lot of websites. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Although you know, an interesting thought on that, and and this is a great like. I feel like we're circling a little bit back to documenting accessibility. What this episode is supposed to be about, but yeah. but I have a question. You can go trigger the Internet Archive to like the Wayback Machine to save. Like, can't you go? Like be like, save a copy right now of yeah, but I can't. any web page. Yeah. So could you do that? Well, like, I don't know. Hand off to I... your client, go to the Wayback Machine, and be like, copy, maybe like save a copy of this website. Maybe I don't. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be every page, but you could do <laughs> yeah. like primary pages. I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I'm I'm more just talking like a snapshot of what version all the software is on at the mm. time of handoff. You yeah, know, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it changes. And that, I mean, the that other be, thing is, yeah. if you're doing saying, that, user testing, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, 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 that's fine. I mean, I was just tagging on that, like, it could just be thrown into, like, the readme and the repo and, you know, like, mm-hmm. that way it's well, timestamped. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting with COVID. So before COVID, we did user testing. We had users come to our office and then we got rid of our office and we're all remote. Now we do it on Zoom and we, free, and we, we almost always... Actually, no, not almost. We always record those. So so that's another thing too, right? You do user testing, you record, then you go fix the issues, and then you have the user come back and literally in a recording go through, it's fine, and then you could document and you you would be able to be like, okay, at this point in time, we like right before handoff, it was tested by this blind person on this screen reader and this operating system and they confirmed it was no problem and here's the video recording showing it. Yeah. Like that to me seems like a decent way to document accessibility. Yeah. And uh, I think I think a lot of like, you know, yeah, we, we could debate on like what would, would actually be like legal, <laughs> would stand up legally, right? But I think in a lot of these cases when you become, uh, when uh, companies become under review for accessibility. I think a lot of times where they get in big trouble is where there's no effort put forward at all 
to to be accessible. I think if if you show effort, and I think that goes back to the accessibility statement, right? If your accessibility statement is, it shows your efforts, right? It shows the efforts that you've already made and the efforts that you're planning on making in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I think that's why, like, Lainey and some of the other attorneys that say these can help you, I think that's why, because it's it's a way of being transparent as an organization and saying, hey, we paid attention to it. Um, you know, there are the weird lawsuits that happen where they're just looking for someone. But my my guess is, is that most of the time those probably go and i'm saying this having not done any research so i'm totally making it up (laughs) but they probably go against companies that or websites that don't have accessibility statements that would be my guess i think that's safe to say um because it's an easier target right now they might have an overlay which is a very interesting thing because having weirdly like an overlay sort of suggests you're trying or at least it suggests that you're aware of accessibility yeah (laughs) but it has been proven that having an overlay will not stop you from being sued. So. Yeah, I just want to be the devil's advocate in here and say, is $50 a month really trying in the context of most businesses' finances? Well, probably I not. Mean, I mean, for a it, micro business, that's not nothing. Maybe. You know? Maybe for yeah. a micro, yeah. Yeah. But no, at the same time, like, those websites could probably be, especially like the tiny, like, restaurant ones. Like, when I see an accessibility overlay on a restaurant website, which I see all the time, I am always just like, okay, you have a homepage, you have an about page, you have a contact page or like something about your private events, and you have your menus. It's like four pages. Why are you paying? Like, it would be cheaper to fix it. To just (laughs) fix it. I mean, maybe not in a month it would be cheaper, but over, like, you're planning on paying $50 a month for the rest of your business's existence. It would definitely be cheaper to just, right. right? Well, I and mean, also it, stop it'd using PDFs be cheaper. for your menus. <laughs> it, I mean, it'd definitely be cheaper, too, is if you actually fix it. You're not going to get sued. With the overlay, you could still get sued. Yeah, yeah that's kind of yeah. the point I was alluding to, is like it, the overlay shows that you're aware that accessibility is a problem and you're doing almost less than the bare minimum to try to do anything about it so in, in my in a sense i think it makes you more of a target um and i i'm not implying that everybody who uses overlays are bad people because a lot of people use them because and they just don't know the pitfalls of those um and yeah. i i talk to those people all the time and and usually they're coming to me like they they like preface it before i look at their website they're like when you go to our website you're going to see an overlay we didn't know any better. We want you to do the real fixes now. Like I, I've had those conversations, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So people are figuring it out. Yeah. Do do overlays generate accessibility statements? See, I know so I little know. about overlays. Like I don't. It probably. It probably depends on the one. the The one thing that I did see one time, and I can't remember. It might have been during AxCon a couple of years ago, but there was a gentleman who was blind and he was like just showing like problems that he experiences with overlays. Mm. And I don't remember which overlay it was, but he went on one website and it like noted he was using a screen reader because they can tell. And, And it 
he was on the homepage and it forcibly redirected him to the accessibility statement page. Mm. And then he could go back. Like, it was like, oh, you're blind. Go read our accessibility statement. Oh. <laughs> Which like was, they- like, really bad, I think. Because he's like, I don't really, like, I just want to use the website. If I want to read this, I'll go read it. Yeah, but why yeah. are you forcing me to read this? I don't know hmm. if they it, the overlay created the accessibility statement or if it just like did that or if that was a setting that was optional and the website owners decided to turn it on because they're like, this will be helpful. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But don't do that with your accessibility statement. Allow people to find it by giving it a very clear link like accessibility statement. <laughs> yeah, And then they can go there if they want to. Don't force them to go to that page when they're actually trying to go somewhere else so so let's talk about the other slightly more official way of documenting uh, accessibility which we've talked about a little bit before which is going through the process of creating a vpat and i know we've talked about what these are but for anyone who hasn't listened um A voluntary product accessibility template is an internationally recognized standard. You can go to a website and download a free like Word doc version of this and you can get different versions for um, if you just want web content accessibility guidelines, if you want AA or AAA, if you need Section 508 or there's an international one which includes European standards. And then you fill that all out and then you save it as what's called an accessibility conformance statement. And and I think it would be interesting for us to talk about ours, which I can link and what we've done. And honestly, you know, like, is it time for us to do it again? Because these are point in time snapshots. Um, but also we could maybe touch on going back to that we were talking about as a uh, web developer, you know, how do you document this handoff? It's interesting, like typically you see these more for software than you do for websites. But I almost wonder if maybe like with that California law, if including a VPAT would be helpful with a website. Like you hand off the website and you hand them a VPAT that tells them literally what the conformance is. Because what it what it looks like, and people will have to come go, is but basically there's a table for the different ver- versions. So if I was just looking at one, I'd have a table that has the criteria, whether or not we conform to it or not, and any remarks or statements. And so, for example, 1.1.1, non-text content. And I was saying that at the time that we did this, which was April 2022, we partially supported that. (laughs) And there were some notes about um, some icons that were purely decorative and expanded yeah. buttons that have ambiguous labels which i think you fixed we fixed a lot of this so we probably really need to update this mm-hmm. we're probably more compliant than we were in 2022 oh absolutely yeah so so chris do you want to talk about like why we have this and why other like website or software owners like even circling back to that client who wanted to sell the LA school district, like why you would go through the process of creating a VPAT. If you have, I think particularly a software product that you're trying to sell, you would want to have a VPAT um, 
just generally speaking, I think it would be good to have one, but most people get them because they want to sell to government. Um, and a lot of government agencies and government entities want you to have a VPAT before they will buy from you. Um, and you have to show them that because they have to report that to their bosses um, and have it on file. So like NASA, they asked us for a, v- a copy of our VPAT, right? Before they would purchase our software? Yep. Yeah. And, and, and that's my thought with this one client. Like I kind of circled back to... They needed to make it accessible and then she needed to have a VPAT so that when they asked her, she could just hand, <laughs> hand them the VPAT, right? And that's like the explanation of where you meet or don't meet. Yeah. What does, does a VPAT, because I, you know, I've, I've read them, but I'm curious to know Amber as someone who's been involved in drafting and consulting on a few of these, um, do you think that translates well to a website? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So because you can really, at, at most of the examples you find out there are for software products, but you can do them for websites. And actually, if you go, so one company that has good examples is um, Adobe. If you go to Adobe's accessibility page, you can download VPATs for not just their products, but also for their like documentation website. Uh, like they have one that talks about the accessibility of their documentation. Um, so, hmm. I mean, really it's, it's, so we chose to do, because we are like, we want to sell our stuff worldwide. We did the most comprehensive version of the VPAT, which was we did standards for web content accessibility guidelines 2.0. We did 2.1. We covered all levels, A, AA, and AAA. Now, that's not to mean we meet everything. Like, if you look at some of the AAA, it says does not meet. There's also some that just says does not apply because, you know, like, captions on live videos. Well, we don't have live videos in our software, so it doesn't apply to us. So it just says not applicable. Um, But we also did Section 508. And then because we're trying to sell internationally, we have – guidelines for uh, European accessibility requirements through the EU in Mm -hmm. ours as well. But if you're just selling in the United States, you could probably just go to to get the Section 508 version, and that would probably be fine. So I I have a little follow-up question. Um, And, you know, when you talk about uh, applying a VPAT to a website, right? So a lot of stuff we do is in within WordPress, right? So if you're generating a VPAT for a website you've created inside WordPress, do you need to, does that need, does that VPAT need to, I mean, maybe there's multiple chapters of it. One talks about the front end and one talks about the back end. Are you then writing a, a VPAT for WordPress? No. The, ad, the admin? So I actually had a conversation with Carl Groves about this. Um, he was super helpful. He so because we created our own VPAT, we tested our own stuff, we filled it in, but I was like for um, transparency and for honesty, I was like, I need to get someone who is not at our company to review this document. Um, so Carl Groves read our ACR and gave us feedback and um, 
And that was the thing I asked him. I said, how do I do this as a WordPress plugin? Because I don't want to report on the accessibility of all of WordPress. I want to report on just our parts. And so under the, so there's a cover with very specific like sections that you just fill in and there's a notes section. Um, and and in ours, it literally says the scope of this report is limited to the accessibility of the product only product referencing what was described above and does not cover accessibility in the WordPress content management system as a whole. Um, I do think that if you're doing one for a website, then you would probably in your notes say like, this is just a front end, perhaps. Like you're only doing it on the front end experience and not on the admin experience. Now, if you're a WordPress plugin developer who wants to sell to NASA, <laughs> yeah. you got to do the front end of your plugin, not everyone's plugins, but the parts your plugin creates. And you need to do the back end because they, they, they can't buy technology that a disabled person cannot use to edit a website. Yeah. Um, so you'd have to do both, but you can just, you just know in your scope that we're only talking about things created by our product or if it's a website, we're only talking about things created, you know, on the front end, right? Not the CMS itself. Very good. So, yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, it'd be great. I feel like we probably should, you know, like, is it an annual? I don't know. We're a small team. But the thing that flagged for me beyond, I just looked at that and I was like, oh, hey, that problem that we listed isn't actually a problem anymore because we fixed it. But we've added a major feature now. So we've added the, the, front the, the whole front end view. And that's a pretty significant addition. And so to me, that warrants us revisiting our VPAT and, and updating it and releasing a new version that talks about the accessibility of that piece. Yeah. So person who controls our Basecamp calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need it to do. Yeah. <laughs> We're fine but. time to do. We're fine time. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's important. It, so it's very important. I agree. Yeah, yeah. But I, honestly, I feel like as far as like documenting accessibility, this is probably the gold standard because it's not just a general like a, an accessibility statement isn't supposed to be super long. It's like a broad strokes. This is what we try to do. This is what we're doing well. These are things that don't work. Here's how you can contact us for help. This is a literal like, this success criterion, yes, no. This success criterion, yes, no. For every one of them. Yeah. Um, and so if you really need to thoroughly document accessibility, then this is the way to go. Yeah, and you stated that, you know, the first pass of this, we did, right? You, I'm guessing you did it, right? <laughs> and uh, Yeah, I mean, I had um, Alex Stein... And yeah. uh, Raghavendra Perry both do testing for us on occasion, and they both had given feedback on the plugin. So, right, so right. it wasn't just me testing, but I also tested too. So, right. But yeah. uh, we're in a little bit of a unique place to be able to to do this because it's 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 our business, right? Accessibility is our business. Um, what about people that you know are not in this, you know, that maybe aren't equipped to to do this themselves? Like, what resources are out there for them? Yeah, so we do VPATs. <laughs> Steve, I don't know if you're setting this up for a sales pitch, but uh, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, we do VPATs for other people. 
um, and audits. I mean, usually the way it works, at least when we do them, is you get on an audit and typically a remediation plan because nobody wants to write a VPAT that just says you don't meet anything because here you go, federal government, here's my VPAT, they still won't buy from you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like the process would be get an audit of all of the important things Fix whatever problems. So if you're a developer, you fix those problems. Or maybe if you can't fix them yourself, you hire someone or we fix them. And then we go back and retest to confirm fixes. And then we write the VPAT. Um, You know, so it's not a, that's the thing I would keep in mind. You know, it's not an overnight sort of thing. So if you don't have one of these and a school district says to you, I need the VPAT, you might, depending upon the size of your website or your software, you might be looking at getting a VPAT in three to six months. Yeah. Maybe even longer. I don't know. Right. But it certainly is not, oh, okay, I'll just hire somebody and get one, you know, next week. <laughs> um, yep. But. If someone tells you they can get you a VPAT in a week and you have a large piece of software, don't work with them. Yeah, it means they're not testing everything thoroughly. It won't be truthful, and then you could get in big trouble. I don't yeah. know what happens when you hand inaccurate information to the federal government, and I don't want to find out. Uh, yeah, I was going to say I don't. That's not a, that's not something I ever want to learn. Um, yeah, yeah. But well, no. So I mean, they're the gold standard for a reason, right? They can take a long time to produce, but then you then you have them, um, and like like we've just said, you know, it with as with accessibility statements, VPATs also need to be updated occasionally if you enhance your software more. Um, but I would say, like the initial creation is probably the the most amount of time that it takes to create a VPAT, because yeah. you know, so like we just talked about, oh, we fixed things. So something that we could probably do better is what's our workflow, Steve? Like we create an issue in GitHub and then what happens? Well, like, yeah. So, so if there's an issue created because we have, you know, uh, you know, ambiguous, uh, ambiguous button or link or something. Yeah. Like, I mean, the workflow is we create an issue, right? Somebody works on the issue. They submit a PR, the PR gets reviewed and, if it's approved, then it gets merged into develop and develop gets tested and turned into a release and then release gets released, right? What what so I think you're saying- So do we add a step at the end? I think what you're saying is, uh, and, and you know, this, this is a hard part about making software, right? With a small team too, is that, uh, you know, there's documentation, right? That needs to be updated time to time. And probably tagging on updating, you know, the VPAT or the accessibility statement at the same time as the documentation update. Because I'm assuming that those two things could probably be done by the same person, at least on our team. So mm-hmm. maybe when that issue is created, we nest we nest in some issue to-dos, right? Like we've done that where it's like the de- development to-do and then there's a documentation to-do nested onto the issue um, so before it can be released, um, those things get updated and then, you know, uh, we can merge it. But being a small team, that's hard. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> like, it's hard. Yeah. But but I mean, even so, like the small team version of that might be that like once every six months. So we have an, an accessibility tag in our GitHub. So you could go look at we could go look at, let's say me, because I'm the person <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> who does their documentation is separate now because small team. Uh, like I could probably go look at all of the closed issues that have an accessibility tag and I could go see if that was something that was in the VPAT and then just update that section of the VPAT. And maybe I'm not doing it every month, right? Nobody updates their VPATs every month, but like every six months or something like that. And then and then the other thing that would that would trigger would be, you know, a massive new feature. And then that's like a, a, a bigger lift maybe because it's not just, oh, go delete this one. It doesn't meet and change it to instead of partially to fully, right? Like that's a quick yeah. change. But if we're talking about a whole new thing, I mean, we already have accessibility testing built into our process anyway. Like front end, we had one of our testers that we paid a test. We had him test our software and he recorded a video and then we are like opening github issues and some of them yep. have been resolved some of them are still in process but um like sometimes we're... sometimes our user testers s- submit prs for us which is great thank <laughs> yes. you alex stein yes thank you alex stein <laughs> <laughs> um but um uh, but yeah so I, I feel like like it sounds scary in the beginning when we were talking about oh this takes months to get a good vpat but I don't know, once you've created one, if you're then like keeping track of things as you're finding them or fixing them or building into the process. And obviously we just said, this is something we need to get better. But like, I don't think it's not months every time you need to update it. It's definitely faster to update a VPAT. So. Yep. So, you know, the other thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit here. Um, and I, I have a link in our, our notes, our show notes. I don't know if Chris or Steve, if you've had a chance to to look at this at all. But this is the only government I've seen doing it. I could be wrong. But in Ontario, they actually have a requirement that businesses and nonprofits with 20 or more employees. So for profit, we're not just talking government now. Like we were talking government a lot. Now we're talking any business with more than four or more than 20 employees have to submit a compliance report to the provincial government. um, And they have to submit it every two years saying how they are complying with the Accessibility with Ontarians with Disabilities Act and WCAG is a requirement under that. And I thought that was really interesting because this, following under this whole discussion about documenting accessibility, this is a government that is saying, you have to tell us if you're doing it or not. Mm. That's well, interesting. So does yeah. the, are these, are these um, private citizens auditing their own websites? Well, so, so that's the thing that's really interesting. They have like a, a PDF, which you can download in English or French because Canada is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, anyone can download it and, and just look at it. The thing that I don't love about this PDF is like a fillable PDF form. You have to like fill certain things in in order to like see the next steps because <laughs> I was playing around with it. I, I mean, technically, it's the business owner is supposed to submit it. But my assumption is, is that the business owner needs to probably, I mean, I don't, if I were a business owner and I didn't know about it, I don't think I would just like answer questions. I feel like I'd probably bring someone in. But it's the same way. How do you know if you're meeting the appropriate laws for wheelchair access if you have a physical space? Hmm. You probably go ask someone, right? 
whether you ask someone in the province or you, you're like, how many handicapped parking spaces do I need in my parking lot? I have no idea. But there's probably a law about that. And so I'm assuming that there's someone you can ask and they tell you and then you know, yes or no, I have the right number of handicapped parking spaces. Hmm. But Interesting. Yeah, I mean, let's lean on the ethical. Let's do the right thing. Let's not give the governments more power. You know, like <laughs> let's let's make the web accessible on our own because we can do it. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yes. So, so you you're not for this, then, Steve? You, well, you I mean, would rather that people make their things accessible and don't have to report as the government. <laughs> oh, wow. So we're gonna start another. <laughs> we're gonna start another episode here. Like, like this is. I know. Right um, at the end. Stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um you know as high level as i can get with my opinion which it's just my opinion right so take it for whatever it's worth is you know i believe the less power the government has the better right more power to the people right like it's it i think that's the best way to go the reason why governments are stepping forward into this area of accessibility is because we're not doing the right things. We're not making things. Yeah. We're not doing it on our own. And this is a result of our failings of, of making accessible websites. Now I get that when the internet was made, it was a lot easier to make something accessible, right? But now we have CSS and we have JavaScript and we got dynamic content. We got all this crazy stuff that really makes, that really impedes on accessibility. Um, they're stepping in because we're not doing the right thing. I think we need to do the right thing uh, because it's the right thing to do. Like, I mean, we everybody should have access to your content. If if it's good stuff, everybody it should be able to to read it, right, or buy it or whatever. Um, but I would like to see us pushing forward on the ethical side more than the legal legal side, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and and not and for many reasons because the. You can see it, right? Like, um, you know, it's like there's there's probably lawyers in like maybe California, right? Like, there's probably lawyers that are just searching for standing so they can sue companies, right? So they can turn this into profit, right? And that's not what we want. We we don't want just to make lawyers rich, right? Like, it's so so like there the more laws there are the more area of you know just like you know i don't know what the right word is like ambulance chaser is that the right word you know yeah of 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 sorts um but if we don't turn around and start doing the right thing the governments are going to step in and force us to do the right thing well you know what i will say about what i like more about what they've done with the aoda in ontario versus the ada is that the this this whole like filing a report to the government and like having the government enforce it, I honestly think that's better than the way the ADA is, which is where the law was literally written and it says the government can't find you, but people can sue you. And then mm. what happens is, is it sort of puts the onus on people with disabilities to demand access. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think that's fair or right. Like, I don't think that they should have to, like, force me (laughs) to make my, like, you know. Yeah. It's an extra burden on them. Like, they don't have access and now it's their job to make sure they can get access. So I will say, like, I much prefer the approach that they've taken in Ontario, which is it's not people can sue you. It's that 
the government can say, hey, you're not complying and here's what you need to do, which is more of what we see happening with the education websites through the Justice Department. Yeah. Like they're not being like, oh, we're going to make people sue. It's that people can go complain to the Justice or well, through the Department of Education, they can complain. And then the Office of Civil Rights then goes and works with that institution right. to make it accessible, which is the way I think it should be. Really. Well, I mean, that uh, the risk there is that it opens the door for abuse. And it's not like governments haven't abused their power before, right? It's it's the the more you give to them, the more opportunity they have to abuse that power. And and you know, I mean, Ontario, you know, Canada's a different government structure than the United States, you know. Uh but in the United States, I'm sure if if things started to get real strict like that that there would have to be checks and balances on the you know, on who's who's creating the standards and who who's approving what a standard is, right? Like, it can get really, really messy. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, everybody references web content accessibility guidelines, but what happens if there becomes a law that doesn't? <laughs> like, well, I don't know what, if there would, if, And I think this like, is what right? Steve is yeah. maybe referencing a little bit with possible government overreach with these things, is if, our, if we're going to suddenly be in a scenario where the government is... And granted, I'm reaching with this right a little bit, yeah, but yeah. say we're in a in a situation where our government is setting its own accessibility standards. There's no there there would have to be checks and balances. Otherwise, someone could write standards that would create um, economic advantages for certain platforms over other exactly. platforms, um, and and things of that nature, right? And so, or, yeah, or there would have to be comp- checks and balances. Or yeah, or p- put people completely out of business because their political views don't align correctly with the the current administration. You know, like the, it's abuse of power happens. It that's why I always lean on the ethical. Let's do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. and and on the ethics argument too. It's I don't think on if everyone was building accessible websites, Ontario would not be requiring biannual reports You're for right. accessibility compliance. You're totally so, right. Yeah. It, they're stepping in because people aren't doing the right thing. Yep. So I've just realized that we've maybe recorded the longest podcast episode <laughs> we have ever recorded, <laughs> even though this is a phenomenal conversation. I am going to wrap us up. Um, I think that that was a great point. I'm going to say build things accessible. Document your accessibility. Have a statement that tells people how they can get help, because really that's what this is about, helping people. Yep. And... Uh, We'll see you back here for another conversation in two weeks. All right. See you All right. Guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Accessibility Craft. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in your podcast app to get notified when future episodes release. You can find Accessibility Craft on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And if building accessibility awareness is important to you, please consider rating Accessibility Craft five stars on Apple Podcasts. Accessibility Craft is produced by Equalize Digital and hosted by Amber Hines, Chris Hines, and Steve Jones. Steve Jones composed our theme music. Learn how we help make thousands of WordPress websites more accessible at equalizedigital.com.